0: This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvisei's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvisei's teachings, or sign up for a newsletter, please visit our website at Goddard.org. Thanks for listening. Last weekend, I was thinking about uh, what I wanted to speak about today, and... Um, I had a sense, I had a sense of a general theme based on a book that I've been reading on uh, yogacara, which is an early philosophical school in Buddhism. And it really it it deals with the way the mind interacts with the environment, among other things. And um, the book is also talking about uh, dependent origination, you know that that chain of causation that leads to all of us being here tonight, for example. And interacting with one another, you know, these different causes and conditions that when you look at them closely, in a sense, when you look behind, you see that there is no independent self. There's, there's no one um, steering the ship. And so instead, there's just this This series, this collection of conditions. So, you know, for example, tonight you you registered for the talk. You have the time and space, you know, to do this. You live in a country that is not uh, persecuting Buddhism. You're fed, you're clothed, you're taken care of enough that you can devote time and space to this kind of study, which is no small thing. And Buddhism takes it uh, very seriously, if you will, or or says that it's in fact a rather extraordinary set of circumstances. There's a, a story in the sutras that says that the likelihood that you have been, that you are born as a human being that you have encountered the Dharma and are able to to practice it, is as rare as um, a one-eyed turtle that lives at the bottom of the ocean. And in one version of the story, she comes up to the surface of, of the ocean once every hundred years. In another version of the story, she comes up every thousand years. And she comes up at exactly exactly the same time that a log is floating by and you think you know this is the ocean so there's these currents you know air currents and ocean currents you know that that are that are making you know all sorts of de- debris float around but she's able with her one eye to see this log and to um find her way to climb through it. So not only is the log there at the right time, it has a hole that is exactly the right size for her to swim through and wedge herself in it so that her back is, um, she can sun her back and she can cool her belly in the ocean. That the likelihood of this happening every hundred years or every thousand years, is equal to the fact that you're here tonight. <laughs> so, um, you know, whenever you feel a little tired or, you know, a little despondent, just think of that. And actually, you know, it's, it's to be born in human form to have encountered and being able to practice the Dharma and to find a, a teacher. And, and I was thinking about that. I was thinking of what, a, what an interesting process you know, that is you know, and I've and I've read and I've uh, heard some very dramatic stories, you know, of how somebody finds their teacher or their teacher finds them. I remember reading somewhere about um, a, a woman who was in a was at a public talk, two thousand people, and she sees you know the the teacher was up on stage, and somehow I. I'm not exactly sure how, somehow they locked eyes across all of that space and time. And she just knew. She just knew that he was the person, that he was the teacher for her. There's people who have dreamt of their teachers before they've actually met them. And you know, I was thinking that my stories really were so undramatic. Um, I mean, maybe the story with Shugan is just a little dramatic, you know, of, of, of uh, that I, the story that I told of, of feeling seen for the first time. Um, but really, I mean, probably by that evening, he'd completely forgotten that we had talked or, you know, he didn't know who I was. Um, and with, with daito Roshi, it was, it was completely undramatic. Uh, I didn't know him. You know, I had gone to the monastery without and the first time I was there, I didn't meet him because he was away. So I I went into residency not having met him and um, I got there and he found out that I could type. And so I became kind of his assistant which gave me quite a bit of time to spend with him. And it actually took me a while to appreciate how special that was. I I just figured he just needs somebody to do his letters for him. Um, And one day we were walking out of of the studio where he worked. Usually we were going back to the monastery for lunch or something. And I'm walking just right behind him. And those of you who, who met him know he was very tall and he always walked kind of stooped. Um, and you know, he always wore these cargo pants and this cargo shirt, no matter what the weather was, long sleeve shirt kind of just rolled, rolled up and these cargo pants. And they were always kind of falling down his butt. <laughs> so I'm standing behind him, I'm walking behind him and I'm just kind of taking him as a person, taking him in and, you know, and I'm seeing like the pants are falling down and I'm just like, I want that. I mean, I, I want that unself-consciousness. You know? I want that um, total sense of ease with myself because at the time I did not feel that at all. You know, I was in my twenties and I did not feel that at all. And in a sense, that's what I, mm, that's what I thought you know, that he could offer me before I knew even about anything else. You know, that here was a person who seemed so at ease with himself and with the world. And I wanted that. And so, you know, going back to, to, to this, you know, to tonight. So here you are, you know, you're experiencing this, this time. And it feels like you are the one experiencing it. Except you too are a set of conditions that has come together for the time being and when those conditions change you and i will no longer be and so what the buddha saw was that behind these these conditions is a lot of space you know that there is no unchanging person there is just the conditions themselves which I think intellectually, it's a little hard to to grok because this experience feels so real. And yet, I mean, physics has corroborated this, right? That the universe and, and each of us is made almost entirely of space. Buddhism has known that for 2,500 years. And if you think about it, that's kind of interesting since our experience so often is the opposite of spacious, right? We feel harried and hurried and overwhelmed. We feel cramped. We feel burdened. And still, what we're made of, what our lives are made of, what all of this is made of, is a lot of space. And so in a nutshell, that chain of dependent origination is showing us Is showing us that when you take apart the various conditions, the person is not really there, not in the way that we think. And so I was thinking about all this and I was thinking of, you know, a good story, a a story I I really like that I thought might work well to illustrate this. And yet I found that every time I sat down to start working on this, I just I put it off. Invariably, I just I remember something else I had to do. Had to work on my taxes i all of a sudden had to clean my room you know and i had to um you know do the write that email that i hadn't written and this just kept happening and in general in general i'm not a, a procrastinator and so i was i was thinking you know that if it wasn't for practice you know or even just a few years ago i would have just have pushed through you know, there's something that needs to be done, so just, just do it. I mean, what's the problem? Just do it. And sometimes that is what's needed, right? Whether you feel like it or not, you, you do it because it needs to be, be done. Or, or, you know, to put it maybe in a softer way, you know, you realize that your feelings about what it is that you have to do don't actually have to get in the way
1: of the actual doing.
0: But over time, I've just seen that, you know, when something like this happens, it's just another opportunity, you know, for me to to see, you know, and to ask what's going on, you know, to slow down, to pay attention. Because our actions in general follow an internal logic, whether we're aware of it or not, whether it's conscious or not. They're, they're, They're rational in their own way. And so if I'm avoiding something, why why is that you know what's what's underneath that aversion
1: and as it turned out it was just because i wasn't
0: ready to give that talk it wasn't the talk for this week and the talk that came up instead was is simpler i think i I don't know if it's as interesting but it's the talk that was coming up a little simpler. So, you know, let me start that by saying that, you know, ever since I can remember, I've always felt this uh, deep, deep sadness. And I always marveled at people who were just bright, you know, light, who could just let things slide, you know, off their backs. Because when I looked inside and when I looked around, what I saw seemed to merit, um, you know, a certain degree of seriousness. And I was very serious, you know, even, even as a child, you know, see pictures of my brother, Derek and I, we were like between three and five and he's grinning from ear to ear. And I look like I'm pondering Sartre. And as I got older, that sadness, that um, seriousness turned into, into a kind of melancholy. And, you know, I've always hesitated to say that I, that I was depressed because I never let myself feel depressed. I started running, fortunately, when I was very young, and I think that's what saved me because running changes me, changes me for the better. But the sadness, you know, on and off was, was there. And I often wondered if there was something wrong with me. And you know, it's not that I didn't see that other people were, were struggling sometimes also, but it just felt, um, I couldn't quite understand why I felt this way because my life in general was quite good. I mean there were things about it that were that were challenging with my family but in general my life was was good and you know in general I mean I didn't drink I didn't do drugs and so I was feeling my feelings and they were just they were just kind of a bummer a bummer sometimes and so you know during my my 20s I was already practicing and I just had this recurrent image of a, of a pair of hands. And I always saw them kind of like zombie hands, like a grayish green, like, like they were just like coming through the earth and just like pulling me down. That was a recurrent image that I had. And I fought this like hell, to be honest with you, because I really felt if I give in to this, I'll never get out of bed again. I thought, you know, that the, that the feeling would just overtake me. And, and maybe it would've. I mean, it did overtake my mother, my brother. You know, there, there are people for whom life is too much. And I think that was the case for them. And, and, and now and then I wondered, is it too much for me? Except, except I also loved, life you know i wanted to do so much i I still do and so dying was not a very appealing option and so even despite that you know despite the sadness i never thought i didn't actually want to live and i remember being in a in a car during hosan uh, when i was living at the monastery and there were five of us in in about in our 20s or 30s and i was the only one in the car Who had never seriously contemplated suicide. And I've since understood, I've since understood why people would wish to die, but it's not a wish I I, I actually have had. And yet, I mean, there was the unavoidable reality, you know, of of my moods and of this, of this darkness that I felt, you know, that every once in a while did overtake. And so I I considered, you know, I mean, should I take antidepressants? And I confess that what stopped me was what people would think if they found out. You know, because by that point I was in my thirties, I was a senior practitioner. And I thought if people find out that I'm taking antidepressants, they're either going to think I can hack it or they're going to wonder whether practice actually works. And it was a very unfortunate thought to have, an unfair thought to have in more ways than one. Because Zazen is not a magic pill. It doesn't uh, just automatically take care of your karma, that takes time. And so maybe taking an actual pill would have helped me, would have helped me, but I didn't. And I considered even less the longer I practice. And yet, over time, things did begin to change. And that's why I'm even speaking about this, You know why I gave you even that, that background is not because I find, because my story is particularly interesting, certainly not unique, but because I've been thinking about the process, sort of like what I was describing before, how a particular set of conditions comes together and how is it when at least even one of those conditions changes, And then everything can change. So when we speak of practice as a process of transformation, this is what I'm thinking about. How does this this come about? Because it's not something that we can make happen. And we've talked about this in in different ways. It's not something that we we can just kind of will into being. But something happens. So what is that? And I was speaking to someone earlier in the week and and they were asking, you know, how can it be that I'm perfect and complete, lacking nothing, when it turns out that I've been hurting someone and I didn't even know, I wasn't aware of it. And I, in response, I quoted Shunryu Suzuki Roshi to them, who said, you're perfect and complete, lacking nothing, and you could use a bit of work. Both are true. You're perfect and complete. And you could use a little work. I could use a little work. So that perfection is because we are. In our suchness, in our beingness, we are indeed perfect. We do fill the ground upon which we stand. As Dogen said. And so from that perspective, there is nothing to change. There is nothing to fix. There's no such thing as self-improvement because how do you improve something that doesn't exist fundamentally? But of course, we don't always act in accord with that perfection. We don't always act in accord with another's perfection. We don't always know we're perfect. We don't feel complete. And so in, instead we come from a sense of lack. And this can last for a long time, even with practice. You know, it's very, it's very difficult to not get pulled you know, by others' reactions, by others' opinions of you. You know, and most of us, of course, want to be liked. That's natural. But how do we not give our power away? And I think that's been a a, a small shift, part of the small shift for me. I just, I refuse. (laughs) I refuse to give away my peace of mind. I won't give it to despots. I won't give it to, to corrupt leaders, to cynics, to narcissists. I'm not resigned either, but I don't want to give away my peace of mind. I've worked hard for it. And it's still, you know, it, Fluctuates, and so we're doing the work of, of realizing that perfection, and, and of bringing it to life. And the work itself is practice, right? So there's there's realization and there's the practice. So we could borrow, we could borrow the phrases that the Buddha used to describe the four noble truths. You know, he said that the truth of suffering must be understood. The truth of the root of suffering, craving, must be abandoned. The truth of the end of suffering must be realized. And the truth of the path, the noble eightfold path, must be developed. And so we understand, or we try to understand, we work to understand and realize that perfection. We work to abandon that which gets in the way of our seeing, and we develop, we practice the path that will get us there. And by there, remember,
1: that's really nowhere. It
0: really means to being here, actually here. When I was trying to explain to my father, I've said this to some of you, why I was in a monastery, and and, you know, to say, oh, I want to realize suffering. I mean, it's just so abstract. And I, I, I didn't even feel that. I, I, I didn't see my life as suffering. But I said to him, you know, I don't want to miss. I don't want to miss a tenth of my life, a quarter of my life, half my life. I want to be there for it, whatever it brings. And that's, you know, Buddhist or
1: not, that's, that's hard to argue with.
0: And so I was thinking about this this presence and thinking that could it be that it, perhaps inevitably, I'm not sure, but perhaps inevitably it's coupled with joy. Could it be the reason that I I no longer see those hands dragging me down? I mean, I have my moments for sure. I have certainly had my moments this past year, but I I don't struggle. I don't struggle against the darkness so much. And I'm not present always, not by a long shot. There's, there's a koan in which a, uh, the monk says something like, I am almost always intimate with this, which I, I think is a nice way of saying, you know, I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm working on it. But I do feel It does seem, from my my limited observation, that this this presence brings with it, I think, at times, a considerable amount of joy. I mean, I've had some of you describe to me just seeing the the food in your bowl for the first time, that, that leaf of spinach, like you have never seen it before. And the point is that this, this particular kind of joy is not dependent on good things, on good things happening and bad things staying away. It's, it's much more basic than that. I mean, perhaps like that love that I've been speaking of as the, as the prime mover, as the ground of being. I think it's, it's really the simple joy of living, of being in your life. And this in no way negates the difficulty and the challenge of living. Now, I've said it before, you know, the world is a difficult place. And a human life is a difficult life. But it is also wondrous and full of possibility. And so I think think the longer we practice, the more we, we... Are able to turn towards that, you know, to turn towards the possibility instead of the lack. And we see, you know, that we won't uh, be as swept up by a wave because we know it passes. And whether this is very, very localized, is your life, your daily life, or whether it's, you know, global, our world situation. I think the more you understand this is this is the nature of things this is these these cycles that we repeat and we repeat and we repeat and we should absolutely keep working you know to 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 see more and to to um, to be more and they will change and so when you see you know you, you see in the distance you see that wave coming you have time to like strap yourself to the mast Of your boat with your mind your awareness and you ride the wave to the other side so the difference is not that there are no waves is you just get better you get better at riding them and still you know even having said that i realized you know I'm, I'm trying to put words to an experience that can't really be quantified. You know, so I used to be very sad and now I'm less so. And when it comes down to it, I don't really know why. I know that things have changed. I went through a period at the monastery. I think it was my second year at the monastery where I was just afraid every single day. And I could not for the life of me tell you why. I was just afraid. And one day... It went away, and I never
1: knew why. And
0: so I do what I know. I keep sitting. I mean, sometimes literally sitting, sometimes walking through it, sometimes giving it space. And I think that too is part of the, 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 the main thing which in a sense, I mean, it goes with that presence, you know, is to not push anything away. One of you said recently, zazen allows everything in. Exactly, that's exactly right. It's like like a power wash. You know, it comes in, you get thoroughly spun in the system and it moves out. I mean, I'm oversimplifying. And so this this story that I love to quote, so you probably have heard this more than once, of A.J. Musty, the um, Dutch um, minister and peace activist, Dutch-American, every day he was during the Vietnam War standing outside the uh, White House holding a candle, rain or shine, snow. And a, a reporter goes up to him and says, Reverend Musty, Do you really think this is going to change the country's policies? You standing here with your candle every night? And Reverend Musty says, oh no, sir, you have this all wrong. I'm not doing this to change the country. I'm doing this so the country won't change me. I sit to let the change happen from the inside, from the inside out and not the other way around. I sit in order to know who I am, in order to know who you are, and to understand that that magical third thing that happens when we come together. I sit in order to see what I don't yet see, to better understand what I'm confused about. And I find that as I do this, this most mysterious thing happens. And I'm often not even aware of it until after like walking through a fine mist or fog and then when you come inside you realize you're completely drenched because as i sit here quietly with my breath doing very little else but being with my thoughts being with my feelings being with sensations why is it that afterward I do find that everything is brighter and sharper and clearer. And if you think about this, we really take this for granted. We just trust. We know, oh yes, meditation is going to make things better. Why?
1: How? How does it do that? If everything is what it is,
0: what's happening? That I do see things brighter, and sharper, and clearer. That every once in a while I do see and feel others more. Every now and then, you're lucky enough, fortunate enough, and something even more happens, and you realize things are actually awash, awash with joy. Through the simple, through a simple act of doing nothing. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.